Um, welcome to this episode of We're All Stories in the End. We are joined this week by Joe Ford. Hello. Joe. Hello, Joe. Can I can I ask my opening question? Oh, I love it. Which I, cool. I, I only thought of this as a, a really good way of, of introducing people when I was just doing some washing up, just to give you a, a you know, behind the scenes. Stimulating washing up, isn't it? So who the hell is Joe Ford? Oh, what a question! That's that is exactly the question that was asked to John Pertwee, you know, when he was um, when he got the role of the Doctor. Um, well, in terms of podcasting, Joe Ford is. Uh, I've got four podcasts on the go: three Doctor Who ones and one Star Trek one. Or do you mean in terms of Doctor Who novels? I mean in terms of whatever answer you want to give me. I'd love to hear more about your podcasts. If there is anyone listening that hasn't heard you, then they need to. So you need to introduce those shows. There's a lot of it out there. You know, they might lose a fair bit of their lives. I've got 500 episodes of Hamster out now. Well, I've got I've got four podcasts on the go. Um, the Nine One Be Praised, which I do with my friend Jack, which is just sort of a general Doctor Who discussion podcast. Then I've got one called Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife, which is a commentary podcast and has been going for two years now. I'm five, 500 episodes in and it's sort of developed a, a lovely community around it. Um, I do one called Finish Big, which is cataloguing the entirety of Big Finish. And we're somewhere around, where are we now? We've just done Neverland. So we're, we're quite early on. We're on the first shelf on, in the. Are you doing them chronologically? Every single thing. Spin-offs. Oh We've done everything as niche as Earth Search, Mind Warp, and Judge Dread and Dalek Empire. I mean, we're gonna be it or senility, because there's a lot of it. I mean, this is what I'm thinking. <laughs> I mean, I I don't know how old you are, but do you do you realistically think it's it's doable? We'll, we'll have a go. You know, he's my partner, so <laughs> let's hope the relationship survives this long, you know. Um but that's that's a lot of fun to do as well. And then I have got a, a Star Trek podcast called Untitled Star Trek Project, which is again commentaries covering the entirety of Star Trek from the original series right up to the modern day Kurtzman Trek, uh, which is a lot of fun, which I do with Nathan Bossomley that people probably have heard of quite for entirety. Nathan. <laughs> Why'd you say it like that? Whenever he comes on, so I'm also on All of Time and Space with my friend Mark Cockrum, and whenever he comes on, I'm just reminded again of how how much I love him, <laughs> you know, and I, I want to be We basically call, call each other internet husbands, because we do that once a week, <laughs> but we're sort of, you know, we, we, we chat every day. He's a lovely bloke, he's a very smart bloke, and I'm reminded he of really every is. time we, we talk about Star Trek. But yeah, but that's that's really nice to do because it's completely different. And you, you know, I'm not saying talking about Doctor Who ever gets wearying, but it is quite nice to have a little sort of palate cleanser once a week as well. It absolutely is. Um, I again for anyone who's listening who may not have heard of any of your podcasts, I've been listening to Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife for I guess about 
two months now and I've you know it's it's my I go through phases with podcasts where I just really get into one and put it on all night and I'll fall asleep to it and I'll wake up to it and I'll have it you know when I'm running or or, or whatever and um I the little dance I do to your theme music <laughs> for that you wouldn't believe it but there's you know air guitar going on and then there's like the the opera shrill shrill singing guy kind of comes in and then I do some like arm work like David Brent. It's quite a, a performance and I'm glad we've got the cameras turned. Most off. people message me and go, that bloody theme tune of yours. Can't get it out <laughs> of my head. Although it is insidious. I'm glad you said that, you know, because I listen to podcasts to go to sleep to as well. And it's never to the detriment of the person podcasting because I think if anything, it's the opposite. Well, I, I, I kind of don't want to think when I turn the light out, you know, I'm that's, Person. yeah so if i've got someone else's thoughts sort of going along and then if it's a nice voice i can just drift off you know into the arms of morpheus that is exactly where i'm coming from it's the the ambience they create and that sense of these are my people yeah. and it's comforting and then you just yeah you just you drift away so um let's try and put all of our listeners to sleep right now <laughs> <laughs> depending well depending on what they think of this book yeah so the book we're talking about on this episode um and i'm falling at the first hurdle here i don't know whether you pronounce it demontage or demontage oh that's very sexy demontage mm. demontage yeah, sounds like a that. sounds like a french a frenchman from the chateau <laughs> But it's a nice play on words, all the same. It really is, and I didn't, I didn't kind of see it coming. I assumed from the title it was going to be, uh, it was, it was going to be sort of demons and and you know monsters, and there'd be some element of them all kind of blurring or some kind of artistic thing. But um, just yeah, just it being demontage to demontage something. Um, I remember that's you know, a really good you, good title. When you first reached out and you were like, right can you come and talk about doctor who books you know you know you know about doctor who books i was like yes please baby um i, I love everything from the burning onwards so if you've got any eighth doctor books you want to talk about from the burning i'm there and you go great okay i've got demontage dominion all these ones from like the earth i was like oh god all right <laughs> actually when i read it i was like there's a lot to talk about in this early period of eighth doctor books there is and we'll we'll get onto it in a second but let's ask you the obvious question which is how did you get how and when did you get into the doctor who books and what was what's your story with them I wasn't, so I did, I had, I've told this on another podcast and it basically I've had death threats since. So I did collect all the targets growing up and read those. Um, and then when I moved from Crawley to Eastbourne, uh, my partner at the time said, look, we are taking too much stuff with us. Something's got to go. Uh, and so it basically said, something in your collection has got to go. So I took the entire target collection, put it in a bin bag the day we were moving and threw it in a skip. So I don't know where they ended up, but it breaks my heart because I've been collecting the bloody things ever since again. Can I just interrupt you for a second? I want to reach out, uh, and I'm saying this in a, in a sort of supportive <laughs> way. I did exactly the same thing when I left Brentford for the Middle East. Did you just throw them out? Target books, bin bag, skip. Yeah. yeah. That's two whole collections, you know, think... that have ended up under the I know. Oh, it's terrible, isn't it? But um, I, so I read the targets, but I wasn't like a prolific reader when I was growing up. And then I remember I picked up Eaters of Wasps, 
that was the first Ave Doctor book I picked up because that kind of ghoulish cover with the gums and yeah. all over it. I thought this might be quite, and it's quite a, a light read. And I was hooked from that day onwards. I was absolutely hooked. And I bought every Eighth Doctor book to that point. I bought every new adventure, every missing adventure. I just bought the entire range. And then I did like this massive marathon through and read the whole lot and did a like a, a, a review read through on Gallifrey Base, which I think was Outpost Gallifrey at the time. Um, and then I st- uh, then I did it from my own blog as well. So I've got a whole blog with every single book reviewed, which uh, was really interesting. I, I did it all with like, bits, bits of paper. So I've got this bag full of bits of paper folded up, covered in notes about all of these books. I mean, they're not worth anything but to me, but I keep them all the same. You know, you see, you say that, but scan them or, or somehow keep them because you know, in 50 years' time, when you've reviewed all the stuff you're proposing to review and you are a cult figure, oh, <laughs> your, your, your incunabula will be poured over by scholars and they will want desperately to get their hands on your scrappy old bits of paper. I mean, 50 years' so, time, it'll probably be um, after my death, you know, I'll be 93 by then. Well, I mean, do you want to? I, I think that's probably best, isn't it? I, I wouldn't want to still be alive when the biographers are digging over my bones but like to be honest like during that wilderness period that sort of 90s up to 2005 i did i collect the vhs's as well of course i did and and the dvds when they started coming out but i was more interested in the books i was more interested in the prose and just the fact that you know what's that saying from the new adventures broader and deeper than than the tv series yeah you know and and it really felt that way to me and yeah, the Eighth Doctor books especially. I don't know what it was. It was something about starting with The Burning, those six books when he was trapped on Earth, and then right through to sort of Time Zero and then through to the Gallifrey Chronicles. That was my first sort of um, every month continuing Doctor Who story. And I was right. absolutely obsessed. I was there at Waterstones every single <laughs> – when that came out on the day, they were like, oh, God, that bloody geek's outside for his Doctor Who book on the day of release – but yeah, I was obsessed. The, so, I mean, I, I wasn't in the Crawley branch, but I was in an Otica's and then a Waterstones while these books were coming out. And you absolutely got your your people coming in on, on the day and they'd be sort of standing there looking at the shelves. And if you hadn't put the new books out yet, they'd sort of twitch a bit and vibrate and look a bit awkward <laughs> until you went into the stockroom and, and got there. But, but obviously I'd have already taken my copy off the pile and put that in my locker. And Just you know. describe me to a T there, do you know? And there was two a month. Do you remember? There was a, a eighth Doctor and a past Doctor. You, yeah. And I, I, I never got into the past Doctors because I think – I think you're right in that the 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 prose um, was kind of where the innovation was and where the, the excitement was and where new stuff could happen. I never really thought, you know, in a past Doctor book, no one's going to, you know, what's the worst that can happen? No one's going to die, you know, because it's got to... It's got to fit in with continuity and so on. Sort of look, so looking I, back at the body of books now, and, you know, there's a library of books, of Doctor Who books out now, uh, you know, a lot of people sort of write them off, but I think you're you're definitely in sort of a fifty-fifty of sort of shonky books to really good books. <laughs> what surprises me is, or surprised me when I went back, 
was how much I didn't get on with the new adventures and how much I did get on with the Ave Doctor. And I was listening to one of your episodes where you mm. were talking about sort of going back there and how they were all sort of making a point, the new adventures, you know, and they were going for big sort of high drama all the time and things like that. And it was sometimes bending Doctor Who into a shape I didn't recognise anymore. Some of those um, Andrew Cartmel books, um, some of the Jim Mortimer books towards the end with, with the body count sort of going through the roof. And I'm like, is is this even Doctor Who anymore? I'm, I'm not sure. I think it can be anything. So when the Eighth Doctor books come came along and they were a little more traditional, still experimental, but they were a little more the sort of Doctor Who that I recognised, I was really on board with those. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, yeah, we've sort of, I say we grandly, me and everyone who's part of this podcast, um, we're all sort of revisiting these books and finding, yeah, the new adventures, they're all just very sort of, uh, you know, very gun, very 90s, very sort of heterosexual 15-year-old boy kind of science fiction. Whereas the Eighth Doctor books, you've got so much range and depth and there are kind of moments of like elegance and um both both sets of books i think um contain so much of what's happened on tv since 2005 but um especially because i haven't read all of the paul mcgann books yet uh, paul mcgann books he didn't write them this <laughs> oh. um, i'd love to read that though if he did <laughs> i've 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 done like uh 12 pages on the back of a, a thing and um, <laughs> nothing really good happens in it, but I'm very handsome. I, I wrote um, Paul John McGowan at the front and you can finish it off. It's all right. Yeah. Yeah. Just sort of, you know, get it up to the word. Well, that's not, um, to, not to write off the new adventures. Like there are some really, there are, yeah, they I were, think, you know, really experimental, you know, and I love them and I still do. And I could still close my eyes and read them all out in order. Um, <laughs> but, I, but but you know it's more exciting to be I think doing the Eighth Doctor books because I'm yeah I'm reappraising both sets and and the Eighth Doctor books are really going up the more of them I revisit or or visit for the first time. Do you wonder Whereas, if, um, if because the new adventures have had such an influence on the new series of Doctor Who, like so many of the new adventure writers skipped across to the new series, that's why they're sort of looked on a bit more fondly whereas the eighth doctor books I, f- I feel as if it's sort of a bit forgotten it's being sort of rediscovered now on podcasts like this i think yeah i think um because yeah pretty much everyone who went on to write for the show started in the virgin era rather than the eda era <laughs> unless i'm wrong yeah. yeah that's right yeah so 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 yes but also i think because of the first kind of run of four or five books the Eighth Doctor books were just kind of really nobbled at the time and, and it was very easy for people to switch off. So I think they just genuinely didn't have the same readership even as the New Adventures. You read, you read The Eighth Doctors, right? Yeah. Fuck me. <laughs> you know, my I've been reading that for I, about five months. I think he's only about three chapters in. Oh, it's so bad. I'm really looking forward to doing the... Um, the episode of this about oh, that. that I um, mean, there's wank, and then there's. I mean, 
I don't know who I'm going to get to guest on that because anyone just bellowing incoherently, full of rage for an hour, that's not going to make great listening. So I'll um, do it and I'll detail every single continuity (laughs) reference that's in there. It'll be your longest episode ever. (laughs) Well, you know what? I'm going to put together a bit of a panel for that one because I think it's (laughs) going to be... um, That's going to be a hell of a listen. You can find that one um, person who loves it, you know? I mean, there must be one statistically. But I mean, who was it? Who was it there for? You know, they're they're launching a new range of books to tie into their new film. So they've had like a, a ninety minute TV movie, and for anyone who enjoyed that, they're smashed around the head with this book, The Eight Doctors, that tells them about all these previous doctors they haven't met and their previous adventures they've never heard of, and the Doctor has to meet them for no reason in order to get his memories back. It's just a masterpiece of irrelevance. Do you remember the first page? Because Terence Dix famously went to that screening of the TV movie, didn't enjoy it, and walked out before they asked him what he thought of it. So on the first page of The Eight Doctors, he goes, he can remember these events that happened in San Francisco. It was an illogical adventure full of bizarre events. And I'm like, why are you bringing in someone who hates this new bold vision of Doctor <laughs> Yeah. And then you've got Kate Allman and John Blum next, who are, uh, clearly have both fallen in love with Paul McGann as the Doctor. And Love yeah. Letter to the TV is a very strange sort of one-two punch, those first two books. It's massively schizophrenic. You've got this kind of like 70s throwback, could have been a, a bunch of Target novels that you're reading in a, a damp afternoon. And then the second book is basically Buffy, but with Paul McGann in it. So it's like bang up to date. And yeah, as as a, what would I have been? I'd have been, let's let's say very late teens, early 20s, because I can't be bothered to do the maths. Right. Um, you know, you're, you, I mean, I, I, I gave up on them after... Um, Casal, and I didn't come back to them for about three years, and then I just got them all. Oh, I got most of them out of the library and just read them to make sure that I hadn't missed anything. Yeah, uh, and Casal, I can understand. Boy, that was a tedious read. Uh, well, the first, the first four. I mean, I mean, genocide and War of the Zygons. I just thought, no, 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 no. Genocide no. And then as soon as I back Joe Grant and get it completely wrong, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> And it had, and, and I remember, and this is a thing I'm wanna, I want to touch on when we talk about demontage, but um, the space names in genocide, you've got aliens called like crisps and packip <laughs> and plibbity wibbity and you just think, <gasps> no, no, trying, are you? <laughs> this, this isn't, you know, I want more books like So Vile a Sin, this is no good. And the weird uh, thing yeah. was, it was, so, it was peppered with books like Alien Bodies, wasn't it, and Seeing Eye, and every now and again, yeah. you had this absolute classic here, so you're like, okay, so they can still do it, <laughs> just a lot more. Yeah, and uh, that's why I love the run from the burning because I think from that point on the consistency is as good, no better than the consistency of the new adventures. Suddenly, there's a lot of focus in the range, and it does feel like that. Yeah, the the people editing the range, and and I'll come on to them, um, but they really are, you know, unifying these books and making it one ongoing story rather than the new adventures, which were very much. Ace, Ace's age, for example, you know, in like she'd be 17 in one book, then she'd be in her late 20s, and then she'd be 
kind of a teenager again and and there was just no kind of overall sense that there was anyone really trying to blend all these books together into one long story whereas the eda books did that so she vanished well. for a second didn't she and then she came back as ace space bitch extraordinaire with yeah. bizarre um costume that she wore on the front of first frontier do you remember that? Do you know that? Do you know that costume? Yeah. Right when I I remember seeing that in a bookshop in like ninety four and just thinking, you know. <laughs> but now, now I look at that and I just think thrush. I said to my other office, "Is that what straight geeks wanted in the nineties? I guess <laughs> <laughs> we wanted that costume, but we wanted Gillian Anderson in it. That's the difference. Oh. Sophie Aldred, who was being fetishized. When you have got Bernice Summerfield oh. in the same books. Why are, Why is anyone lusting after I hope one day Ace? we can talk about Bernice because I just love that character. I, I shall make a little note on my bit of paper. Here. Uh, uh, the, I shall. I shall put you down for a bit. What we were saying about like the coherency um, after the burning onwards. The the funny thing is, is like Justin Richards is right. We're going back to basics. We're going to have an amnesiac doctor. We're basically going to rewrite the character into somebody that's actually interesting to read about. Um, we're going to give him this arc. You know, he's going to have to find the TARDIS, but we're going to have no continuity. You know, we're not going to bring in the Daleks and Cybermen and all this. And then they just can't help it, can they? Then you start getting <laughs> Sabbath coming in and the Council of Eight. And it's suddenly, and then you've got that alternative universe cycle towards the end, and it's getting more and more complicated again. I'm like, they just can't do it. They cannot do the run of like you know standalone good standalone books. It's interesting, isn't it? Because they did, you know, as we said, they they published these like one a month for the overwhelming majority of the run. Um, So if you look at it like from one year to the next, you're doing like seasons of of 12 adventures basically yeah. so they could have had like year-long arcs and they probably do if you if you look at them in a certain way it probably works because i think like interference came out in the summer i want to say so that would be like a season finale kind of thing i think you should have been editing um, the books you know that sounds way better than what we got well you know if anyone from uh bbc wants to wants to cancel the tv show and bring back the, <laughs> um the much smaller um uh, focused book range. I am here to edit it, um, but 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 they did do exactly what I would do now if I woke up and I became showrunner. You know, I think I think that's a really rich way forward is to get rid of the continuity, or you know, fine. Every two years you can have a Dalek, whatever. But let's not bring them back every eight episodes because we nothing ever happens. They never kill the Doctor. He never destroys them. It's there's nothing left to do with them, you know? And the result was, and I won't detail them all, but, you know, our main five, you know, you suddenly had books like Father Time, Year of Intelligent Tigers, Adventuress of Henrietta Street, um, and oh, oh, no, I want to say arachnophobia, but it's anacrophobia, isn't it? Uh, Tomorrow Winders. You suddenly had these amazing books, but entirely original books as well. And I really... Yeah, you know, I really like that. I think Doctor Who can lean on the past a bit too much sometimes. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, c- I couldn't agree with you more, so I'm not going to. I'm just going to stop talking. Well, you know what you do when you do? You get books like, um, what was that Ice Warrior, A New Adventure? Oh, it was terrible. Oh, God Legacy. Yeah. The Gary Russell one. Oh, God, God Engine. God Engine, that was it. God, God Awful. I used to call that God yeah. Awful. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Oh, but um, you know, uh, very sad that Craig is oh, no longer with us. Yeah, and you know, um, I don't know if you ever read the Quantum Archangel. Everyone hates it. I mean, it's the Sixth Doctor and Mel in a sequel to the Time Monster. What more do you need in your life? Oh, oh, <laughs> there's there's niche, and then there's like underneath that, there's another. Well, that's niche. just ticking all my boxes, so I devoured it. You know? <laughs> so let's get on to. Uh, Demontage. Demontage. Henri Demontage. So as you've as we've established, you came on board at the burning. You loved the books from then mm. on. So we've gone back to kind of I guess you you kind of caught up with the, the first twenty books kind of at some point after that. So you're you're familiar with them, but these aren't necessarily your era. And I suppose the first thing to talk about is is the TARDIS team. We've got the, the Eighth Doctor, who's been, you know, as I say, in about 20 books. He's bedded in. He's settled down. Uh, there's this brand new guy, Fitz, and there's Sam Jones. Ah. So what do you think of that TARDIS team? <laughs> Not the finest hour for the TARDIS team. But no, okay, I'll say straight off the bat, I think Fitz is incredible. And what a breath of fresh air for the range he was when he, I mean, this is his second book, isn't it? This is yeah. This is his first full, you know, story as a companion. So, yeah. I think he he comes in and he's everything that Sam Jones isn't. You know, he's awkward. He's a smoker. He's unhealthy. You know, he wants to lounge around and have sex with a bunch of women. And he's he's basically us, isn't he? In- yeah, yeah. He's 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 fandom. He and he's fun and he's feckless. And you have so much dramatic potential because. He's always going to say the wrong thing or lie to try and impress someone or cock something up, <laughs> and you're always going to get a story out. And of they that. mine that brilliantly, like they really all do. The way to the Gallifrey Chronicle, so he has a hell of a run. Or, or mind you, he does get swapped out, doesn't he? In Ancestor Cell, it becomes Father Kreiner, and we get a copy of Fitz or something. Something goes on there. There's a thing that happens, but I mean, you know, you're not. If it was on TV, it would still be the same actor. So, in my head canon, he's the same dude. And I guess he must be like the longest running companion. In the books, I would say so, yeah. He must have done a few more than, than even um, our Queen Bernice. Like, so, I don't yeah. think any anyone I know, and everyone's read some of the books, has a bad word to say about Fitz. He's just like, effortlessly likable. And it's just the fact that he is so useless sometimes. Like, it's always a victim <laughs> in these books, whether that's you know, of his penis or of him just behaving in a really stupid way. But he also gets to be really brave as well. And because he is a bit useless, he surprises you with his sort of moments of depth as well. He's almost like a it character. Yeah, he 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 really earns your emotional investment because you know that this is so against his nature to charge headlong at these killer robots, even though he knows he's probably going to die, that you're really there with him. And with some of the other companions who are like, you know, hardened space bitches, <laughs> you think, well, you know, yeah, what that's like what you do before breakfast. I'm not going to give a, a fig in about that. But um, as for Sam Jones, um, mm, do you know what? I'm doing a, a really deep sort of... Because I think mm, Sam Jones is the reverse of Fitz. No one's got a good word to say about her. She's even like killed off off screen in the Gallifrey Chronicles. You know, that's how little <laughs> range for her in the end. And the problem with her is, is 
she was dated before she even appeared. I think there was probably a time, you know, where these sort of um, pro-vegan, you know, pro-ecology, you know, I'm going to be at every march. I think there was probably a period in the late 80s, early 90s where that might have been fashionable. But it kind of got old very quick and people sort of look down on those people now. And so she's a bit she's a bit embarrassing. You know, the worst thing about her is, is she's no fun. Like she, she, this book is a great example is that they're in this sort of space casino where you could be having a right old time. Fitz is off playing James Bond and having a great time. Well, he's lost his money, but he's still having a great time. Uh, and yeah. Sam Jones is like, Oh no, you know, he's smoking cigarettes. I'm just going to go down the gym. Oh, yeah. I'm going to do a quick 10 K and then I'm going to have a shower and then I'm going to go back to the gym and do another quick 10K. Do you remember that bit where, and, where she gets um, beamed into the painting in this? Yeah, like, yeah. Quick, sell that painting now. Get it out. <laughs> <laughs> burn it, burn it with fire. <laughs> well, they do do that with one of the paintings, don't they? And I'm like, it could have been that one. Um, but no, and I think they realised very quickly they had kind of boxed themselves into a corner with this really dull character. And... What is interesting about her is then the things they did to kind of try and rectify that. So they did that period where Sam Jones kissed the doctor and then went running off. And he had, he had a period of books where he was looking for her. And she had like seeing eye where it takes place over three years of her life as she grows up a little bit and matures. Mm. And you get the evil Sam that uh, Lawrence Miles creates and then Kate Orman and John mm. Blum run with. So I think the sort of the reaction against Sam Jones is more interesting than the original conception of her character because she doesn't work. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There is a kind of, it makes me think of like, even, you know, when I was like five or six and reading the first Adrian Mole book, Sam's politics are very kind of early eighties, very cut and dried, moral absolutes, meat is murder, murder is murder. Um, I'm going to be so straight edge. It's painful. It's black and, and white, isn't it? Like she's and, convinced she's yeah. right all the time. You know, you almost want her to be wrong. And I think the other the other aspect of it is that she's pretty much the first new companion in the books who who wasn't like really obviously based on someone, or you weren't sort of secretly told. In, for example, the pages of DWM, they sort of told you who to imagine playing Benny Summerfield. Was it Emma Thompson? You know, they, it? it was Emma Thompson, although although pretty soon that didn't work. But, you know, as a starting off point, that was a great suggestion. And I think with Fitz, they said Robert Carlyle, but, I mean, no. Um, there are so many people. There are so many people whose podcasts I listen to who I would rather imagine um playing fits frankly i i, um, uh, I always imagine matt d'angelo because he played him in a, a big finish story and he's so cute um, i just want to think about matt d'angelo so i'll just see it. do you want me to give you five minutes no, no. All right, i'm good don't worry you're yeah. right just make a note of it come back to it when we finish <laughs> i've got that up before so... we started don't worry <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i think sam is oh oh that's my dog hello indy it's a squirrel it's a squirrel don't oh every time i think she just does it to be famous she wants to get on the radio every time our podcast you know something happens because it's a commentary as well you can't stop or edit so something happens 
whether it's i know a bird it's a window or a kid comes into the room or something you know i'll just i'll just keep it all in i mean it it adds to the uh to the listeners experience yeah yeah so yeah sam sam we don't have anyone in mind everyone's got their own favorite generic night i mean some people said like louise from sleeper but younger i mean that's not that's not something you can visualize. Well, I, I was um, um, spoiled because there was a copy, uh, there was an issue of DWM where Steve Cole said that Sam Jones was based on the copying assistant that worked in the office. And there was a picture. Right. Of so straight away, there's your problem. Emma Thompson, Oscar winning actress, <laughs> everyone can relate. The girl in the photocopier office, not so much. The intern working in the office. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder she was so memorable. Um, yeah, and that's so. And this is this is kind of near the end of the run for Sam. I think she's got. Uh, well, let me count: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You know, I've started counting, and my contact lenses aren't actually as good as I thought they were. So I can't actually see where she. Oh, that's yeah. She's got about five books she off. Gets interference, doesn't she? And then compassion's in, and all of a sudden you've got the Eighth Doctor fits in compassion. And then you've got a range, you know, that people are talking about again. Yeah. Yeah. Compassion was great. Angie was great. Tricks. I'll be honest, I can't remember a damn thing about Tricks, but I'm pretty sure she was better than Sam Jones. She didn't have time to bed in, did she? Like, I think there were some really good books that featured her, like Sleeper Reason, Tomorrow Winters, Deadstone Memorial, and a few others. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, the fact was, well, that she was always wearing disguises was like, well, who the hell are you? Yeah, I mean, what is this like a guest actress every week? Are we supposed <laughs> oh, to supposed to imagine one week she looks like Dawn French, the next week she looks like Iman, the next week? She- Thanks, Ian. I'm going to do that now when I read those books. Uh, and 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 the Eighth Doctor. We like the Eighth Doctor. I think we can take that for granted. Do you sort of have a bit of a man crush on? Well, it's, you know, I, I met Paul McGann at a time the other day. You know, at a convention, <gasps> and man, he was charming as hell. Oh, so I already love the Eighth Doctor, but he's, he's certainly oh, gone up oh. in my estimation. And he's still very pretty as well. I bet he. Might. I mean, I haven't seen him. I think the last thing I saw him in, apart from Power of the Doctor, was um, you know that he did an episode of Jonathan Creek in about two thousand and eight, yeah. and I think that was the last thing I've seen him in. But he was still a very striking young man. In Can I disagree with you about the Eighth Doctor at this point, though? Okay, because right. I think I think he's a little bit generic and i don't think they got a proper handle of him in until sam jones left and then they started writing him sort of a bit angrier and a bit there there was a there was an arc taking place there after that Mm. he lost the tardis he was traveling in compassion there was a war on gallifrey that was coming and so suddenly he was a lot more focused as a character I found it very odd in this book that he basically doesn't have any impact on this story until about a third into the book. He doesn't do anything. He barely appears in the first third. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was thinking. It's kind of, it's a strange book because you don't have an obvious kind of villain at the start or, you know, it doesn't immediately become clear what's going on, who the baddie is, where they're going to invade the planet. You know, it's a very different beast. And it does render the Doctor... You know, if you take him out of the format of what the Doctor does in Doctor Who, then yeah, he's just standing around, kind of waiting for, 
waiting for the plot to happen. Eventually, was... he's like doing the Poirot bit, isn't he? He's finding the flecks of paint at the murder scenes, and he has that yeah. wonderful scene near the end where he's playing cards with those two those two crooks that are cheating the cards, <laughs> and so he cheats as well. And they're you know he's like, oh, their faces, you know, when he's got a full hand. Yeah, I think you know I, you're right in 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 a number of, on a number of levels. I mean, he was generic because he was being written by Doctor Who fans, not being played by an actor at this point, and everyone's going to default to a kind of you know a, a kind of default Doctor kind of when they're writing. We still, we still um, love that default Doctor, don't we? Yeah, I mean, you know, occasionally he says things that are a little bit kind of old-fashioned or or cringy or you think oh that wouldn't happen now you wouldn't get Jody doing that but i think on the whole it's it's a companion we uh, companion it's a character we love and so you can you can forgive it when people kind of make him a bit of a a greatest hits but then you put him in a, a different kind of adventure like this one and you you get to see how he'd operate in different kind of formats you know like if he was in a like like this kind of starts out feeling like it's uh gonna be a james bondy adventure so you've got the idea of him kind of slowly biding his time and and being up to things and and you know what's he gonna do or is he gonna and then it goes as you say it goes a bit poirot and and then he kind of reminds me of albert campion i don't know if you ever watched the peter davison series campion yeah. from the late yeah. 80s He's he's kind of like that. He's this kind of like mild mannered. Um, you wouldn't you wouldn't think much of him, but actually he knows what's going on and he's got the best brain in the room. It was quite so. witty in the prose as well. There was one where, yeah. where he's pushed up against a ledge and he's just said that his credit chip's going to bounce, and then he looks over the ledge <laughs> and he goes, "There ain't just a credit chip that's going to bounce." You know, he, he, was quite, <laughs> he was quite. It's it's interesting that Justin Richards when he gets the chance. This is a Justin Richards book, and I think he could turn his hand to pretty much any Doctor. He's one of the few writers I think that manages to capture Patrick Troughton really well, and a lot of them it's, it's an elusive character to get right. But I think in one of his books, uh, Justin Richards' books, he's got a scene where Patrick Troughton accidentally sits on a plate full of sandwiches, and then he's running around the base, and the sandwiches are stuck to his arse. And I was like, that's pure Troughton. <laughs> <laughs> I can see sort of Jamie reaching out for a, a quick bit of ham and pickle action. You think so you can get away with it, yeah. <laughs> but when he, when he gets the opportunity in the burning to revise the range, and that he does a top to toe rewrite of that character, and he's brooding and menacing and mysterious, and and kills people, and you know, not always likable. And I think he does want to correct some of the the more generic interpretation that we have in the first half of the eighth doctor books i'm not sure what orders to get, go about things in but let's let's look at some of the other characters while we're talking about the characters and you alluded to the two sort of cheating drunk um forgers and card players we've got newark repair or Re do you say repair or repair i was saying repair but we might yeah and his his chum i've written down Forster, and I've completely forgotten his first name, so that was bad. Oh, I wrote down Forrest. Um, he wasn't Forrest Forster, was he? Oh, I don't know. I'm going to have to <laughs> flick. I'm going to flick through the book. There's repair. Oh, his his partners. Anyway, so they're the kind of um, 
you know, Holmesian double act, if you will. What did you make of those guys? Really fun. Um, always like, so they're the ones making the fake Martinique painting. Aren't yeah. They? And they're the sort of characters that they would get in, like, you know, prestige guest actors to play if this was on the TV series. Absolutely. Sort of like your Garen and Unstoff sort of characters. I think, yeah, if someone like Richard Griffiths maybe would be one of them. And the guy that played Hair Flick in Hello, oh, Hello. I yes. think you put right. those two together, that's a hell of a double act, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but, um, but, but Newark Repair, I want to say, is he in one of Justin Richards' new adventures or one of the, the Benny new adventures? I feel like Dragon's Wrath. I feel like repair is one of the guys forging the dragons in that so it's like justin richards mining his own stuff it's very possible i mean he's written so many books at this point you know he may as well just steal from himself but they were they were they were really fun and every time every time we went back to them i sort of perked up again (laughs) yeah because it is there is there's like a, a whole list of guest characters in this book and nobody is who they i think you kind of know the pattern with a justin richards book now is that there's going to be a load of setup and then you're going to get a ton of twists towards the end and nobody and nothing is quite what it seems very true the rest of the characters however in this book have such bad names <laughs> I, I i couldn't really take them to heart Space you names, know, like, them. yeah yeah here's one um Tullus Gaff. <laughs> Henri Blanc. Uh, <laughs> Henri Demontage. We also had, was it Solarin, Space Assassin? Yeah. Stabilo, which yep. I think is the name of a pen. It is, isn't it? Like a highlighter <laughs> I kept pen. I seeing a pen every time we turned up. Yeah. I bet it's like an in-joke because he's sick of getting manuscripts back from his publishers with, like, highlighter pen all the way through it. So he's called a character, Stabilo. And the most funny about President Drexler. Oh, yeah, which is... Oh, that's, <laughs> that's, so, you know, you've got, you've got real invention and kind of wit with the characters. And then you've got, on the other side of the equation, you've got some real kind of like, oh, I can't be arsed, he's called... Peter Desk and he's a baddie you know it's just <laughs> when you've got when you've got villains like Repair and Forster to also have some of the you know like the president it's it's kind of, it feels kind of disjointed to me and I, I felt that way about the twists as well you know because I thought half the twists in this really landed and I was taken by surprise and half of them I was like oh that's a bit obvious from the so the pair um Am I allowed to do a lot of spoilers? This is about 20 years old. Yo, yeah. Anyone anyone who hasn't read these books, they've had plenty of time. <laughs> <laughs> and if you didn't read them, well, you know, as Justin Richards said, that plenty of them went overseas to that school in that furnace. To, to Did you hear about that? Yeah, I did hear about that. I'm, someone was telling me about it on one of the... One of the episodes, I was like, oh, my God. And no whinging about spoilers. You had your chance, all right? <laughs> all the yeah, books were shipped out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, uh, some some of the twists I really thought landed. So you know the whole thing about Gaff and Blanc. I can't say these names seriously. Do you know? I know. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> we try and tell people that this is an adult hobby, but here we are. And if if my wife heard an episode of this, I would die. Well, Marvel does this, doesn't he? So I think his is even geekier than mine. 
<laughs> but the sort of the big twist around those two was that they killed Martinique. And yeah. I kind of figured that was the case, but the surprise twist was that he was still alive, that he realised what they were going to do, and he put himself in the painting, and then he pops out on cue. And I really like that. That really surprised me. So I I thought it was great. I loved it. I was there for it. I was up for it. And then it kind of dawned on me that I think exactly the same thing happened in Justin Richards' debut novel, Theatre of War. Oh, really? What, in a painting? In in wasn't it to do with like there was a play and there was a ancient device that was projecting the people from the play and then the writer of the play kind of emerges from the machine. I haven't read Theatre of War since about two thousand and two, so I won't know until it comes up in this in this read through. But I feel like it's the same thing happening again. I think he's a like a consistently reliable writer, Justin Richards, but he does structure his books you can get used to it quite quickly in a familiar way. Yeah. I mean, he, so again, kind of inside baseball, but when I reached out to you, I I think I said something like, Oh, it's only a Justin Richards. Don't get too excited (laughs) because in my mind, like his first couple of books were great. And then he kind of went off the boil and got really kind of formulaic and like kind of just churning it out. And I think I'm wrong. I think, I think this book alone is proof that, like all writers, he has good days and bad days, and there are there are great books at all points of his his writing. But that was that was my starting point with He's this. He's done so many now, though, hasn't he? And then when they went into yeah. the new series adventures, it felt like in sort of the three they would release, there was always a Justin Richards book. Yeah, so it sort of became a name <laughs> you- where we're like, okay, I'm a bit tired of this now. He's like, in my head, he's like, who is the guy, who is the baddie in Voyage of the Damned? He's just a head <laughs> attached to a box. He's, out just, he's, he's just, yeah, he's a head on a printer and there's just pages coming out and his soul is just being eaten. Justin, away. if you're listening to um, this, we, I know him. Yo, Justin, if you're listening to this, we love you though. Stay okay. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but, yeah, um, you know, when he's on... Form, when you get a book like uh, Theatre of War or Dreams of Empire, which is a really great second Doctor book, um, and Time Zero in the latter Eighth Doctor range, where he was writing out um, Angie and bringing sort of the arc to a bit of a conclusion there, he was writing really complicated, like complex scientific ideas into books, but really engagingly. That that particular one, he he writes the chapters in reverse because we're going towards time zero and it's a really fantastic book so you know when he hits he hits that's um that's like the doctor who equivalent of time's arrow by martin Amos. yes <laughs> <laughs> he's that he's on that tier of brilliant and whereas so, like with yeah. uh demontage this is this is a fun book and i think it's it's a book that's aiming to be very funny and it winds up being just sort of fun but at a point where the range was very serious and it desperately needed a bit of a giggle. Absolutely. It's, I mean, I don't know if it's just the injection of fits or if it's some kind of edict from above to, you know, for fuck's sake, write something fun. In the early stages of this, you know, have you ever seen Blake Seven? I've seen, I've, I've just started series four now. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm there or thereabouts. Remember the episode Gambit on the space casino? 
Yeah, that's the that, that's the the standout memorable episode. You can't forget it, can you? It's it's, it's brilliant. Amelia Ducar in fishnets. I mean, you never forget it. But <laughs> oh god, as this as this started, I was getting sort of vibes of that. You know, the casino and sort of quirky characters. It's nowhere near as extravagant as Gambit. But I was definitely I was like, oh, I can't. it's yeah. It it could have been a lot more camp. I think it could have it could have easily withstood a lot more campery um, what they needed to make it it should have been written by paul mars it does kind of evoke gambit you have got this kind of comedy grotesque characters you've got this kind of um slightly uh exaggerated setting um and this kind of pre- the, which is kind of a doctor who stand the kind of preposterous coincidence of about 10 different plots all coming together and this yeah. This few days in this, uh, you know, this, it's not a space station, is it? It's like a little... They call it um, Vega Station, don't they? But yeah. It's revealed to be like a it's, monitoring station. That's the twist about the station, isn't it? That, yeah. It's going to be like Varos. It's going to be like a big dome in the middle of a sort of purple, rocky space yeah. setting, I imagine. Um, but also, I, I'll tell you another thing. When I was reading this book with people sort of popping in and out of paintings... I was thinking, do you reckon Moffat read this just before he wrote The Day of the Doctor? Oh, maybe. It might have been <laughs> I, think, well, I was thinking of Sapphire and Steel. Do you remember the Sapphire and Steel where yeah, they were coming in and out yeah. of photographs? I mean, you know, it's it's kind of, it's all the same fandom and it's all the same ideas endlessly being recycled. But I think I think this is one of those books where you can definitely say this inspired that and this came from that. Um, what, the, what you can do with that that's really fun is when the devourer of souls there's a melodramatic name if ever i've heard one <laughs> i used to call my bank manager oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my mother. um when he comes out the painting um and fitz manages to get uh, an accidental swipe with a knife at him um it's cloth isn't it he's he's yeah rather than blood and i thought that yeah i'd love to have seen that visualized I think that would be really good in a kind of um uh what's the flatline? You know the, yeah. the the boneless in that or whatever they're called. Yeah, very similar to that. Well, I think some some sort of right highly stylized visual thing, but with the, the sound of ripping canvas, that would have been really creepy. And that's that's the sort of quirk he, he goes for here. He's also got the the opera that's being attended by a bunch of space wolves, which I thought was a really fun idea as well. Yeah, <laughs> you can imagine like if it was a full house and they're all howling along to the howling on the stage, that would just sound really terrible. The trouble is, though, uh, is I've watched so much Doctor Who now, all I kept seeing was like really terrible wolf costumes instead of imagining an actual wolf. <laughs> well, I I was, again, um, I'm not saying this this was a direct inspiration, but I was just thinking, well, it's Carvin Easter, isn't it, really? Of course. I'm just, I don't know what this is. I'm just having a sip of water as well. It's like we're in some kind of mid 90s pub setting, and I feel like I've got a matchy drink for drink. Or I'll do the big finish sort of pub murmuring in the background, then shall I? Yeah. 45p for a <laughs> Like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll have a pint of beer, please, Gary. Oh, you've been to the Eastbourne pubs, have you? Right. <laughs> I know, so I forgot to say, but when I pressed record, I normally say, don't say anything you're not happy for me to put out. 
You've heard uh, Hampson with a blunt pen knife, right? I mean, yeah. So, <laughs> but is there anything else you want to cover on the subject of demontage? Uh, yes, I, I, I've got a question for you. Okay. Um, because this was all told within a single setting of Vega Station. So this mm -hmm. is a Doctor Who book that could absolutely be filmed as a Doctor Who story. You know, you just need a handful of sets yep. and, you know, some crappy CGI for the monsters. Should Doctor Who's... And I was, I was reading this and going, should Doctor Who books, which have the ability to tell things on an enormous scale, should they be doing that? Should they be telling stories that you can visualise as a TV story? Well, so... Here's the thing. I think, I think it, it may not be as much as fifty-fifty, but I think a lot of the books really do just try and evoke something that could have been realised by the BBC's drama department budget of the eighties. And I think an equal number of books hop from planet to planet, and you have huge, you know, stuff happening and universes being engulfed in flames the kind of thing that we haven't seen really until flux so i think it's um when it's done well and i'm thinking of books like anacrophobia um and, and this one um i think it does work as a kind of loving homage to the show that spawned the book and when it's and when it's the opposite and a writer is doing something that really breaks the format of what doctor who fans have come to expect I think that's good. I think it's good for them as <laughs> I think it's good for them as human beings. I think it's good for them as readers to be taken outside of their comfort zone, but you can't do it every book. So I think a good mix of of old and new. And I don't know if you do this as well. I do it. When it's when it when you are reading a book and it's it's so kind of televisual, thinking of, you know, the the kind of things the books of people like Trevor Baxendale or this. And you're just sitting there and you're thinking, right, if this was Late eighties TV. Who am I casting as oh, that character? All the time. Oh, I know. Isn't it fun? It is fun. Well, and you said in a previous episode as well. Nah, the game of what would I do if I was the showrunner of Doctor Who? I mean, that's pretty much how I wake up every day. I just wouldn't want to be the showrunner of Doctor Who because I'd have people like me hounding me with bloody podcasts and reviews. <laughs> Could be better, Joe. Could be better. In in summary, then we both like this a lot more than we, you know, set out to do or had been expecting. Um, I think it's one of the, and I say early, but you know, here we are. We're about twenty books into the range, as I've said, maybe even more than that. Um, but it's the first one that I've come across recently that kind of feels lively and you'd want to see this on tv or you'd happily read this again this is this one's a keeper i suppose is what i'm trying to say we've had like the longest day and war of the daleks and you know terribly dull science fiction you know worthy science fiction books in oh, the range to this point and i feel like this is justin richards going right i'm just like you said i'm gonna write a doctor who story that one that we can all picture being on tv it's a lot of fun and it's got some bounce to it and fun characters and you know some good twists but not be anything more than that just being a, a good doctor who story and yeah i think the book should absolutely do that every now and again yeah 
Great. So that's, a, I guess, a big thumbs up from both of us. Joe, do you want to come back at some point and talk about another oh, book? You no, know I do. You just tell me where and when and I'll be there. who did James Bond? I'm sure Justin Richards isn't the first person to have a go at answering that question, and he definitely won't be the last, but his eighth Doctor novel also throws other things into the mix, all of which add up to a story that may start off poorly, but builds up to a fun adventure. So yes, all the Bondian tropes are there. A casino location, a shadowy cold-blooded assassin with a gun made of glass and a decision-making tick, a case of mistaken identity. An attractive girl with a ludicrous name. Even a high-stakes poker game in the middle to slow down the action. But the book also feels a bit like a tip of the hat to classic series writer Robert Holmes. So there's a comedy double act of con men trying out a scam. A harassed official. Alien political machinations. Satirical commentary. And a love of the macabre. There's a lot crammed in. And it's part of the problem at the start. Too many shifting scenes. Too many characters. And too many plot points introduced in quick succession. It's not bad. Well, apart from some really awful jokes and a seeming obsession with Fitzy's running out of cigarettes. But it all gets a little confusing. It could have done with a bit more breathing space, a few more scenes to allow the reader to get to know the characters and the fallout from the bachelor canvine war. I did enjoy the fact that the wolf-like canvines were not the real monsters of the piece, and that and their strange love of opera. Plus, the odd friendship that developed between Big Dog and Fitz was fun to see. I already knew that I liked Fitz from the other books in the series that I've read. And while he often tries too hard, and makes some very bad choices in trying to impersonate a hitman, he's still a lovable character. However, I know he's from a different time, and I know his language is meant to reflect that. But I could have done without some of the opinions on overweight people and poofters. Sam is still the waste of space she's always been. She spends most of the book wandering around and being bored and miserable at the bar. When she got sucked into that painting, I half hoped that was the end of her, but no, no such luck. How fortunate that she ended up in the one painting with an escape route. As the book raced towards its conclusion, there were several reveals, and some worked better than others. That obsequious Harris Stabilo was really a tough security agent? Yep, like that one. That hitman Hazard Solarin was really there to protect the president? A bit clumsily handled, maybe, but sure, why not? But the artist extraordinaire Toulouse Martinique had faked his own death? That anyone could see from a mile off it was so obviously signposted. What was clever that it turned out he was actually a copy of the original who had hid inside one of his own paintings and was able to paint the truth of his own murder. Complicated, but also very satisfying. Even if the way that all the various people and creatures got in and out of the artwork was so much SF mumbo-jumbo that you might as well have said, it's magic. As for those creatures, well, the descriptions are suitably lurid and grotesque. The Devourer is a lovely monster akin to Azal or the Great Beast. Again, the science behind them is a bit hazy. It does feel that Richards was suggesting they were created by a futuristic version of Photoshop. In the end, the bad guys get suitably nasty fates. Although I'm not entirely sure why Gath and Blanc burst into flames. The Doctor now owns a casino, and Fitz has a drink with his new hairy best chum. And for a book that I struggled with at the start, 
I found myself enjoying it more and more as the week went on. It's not a classic in any sense, but it does where its influence is loud and proud and has fun while doing so.